Section 12 of the Democracy of the Constitution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tori Felder. The Democracy of the Constitution and Other Addresses and Essays by Henry Cabot Lodge. Thomas Brackett Reed. Thomas Brackett Reed. In the preface to his edition of Shakespeare, which is as entertaining as it is neglected, Dr. Johnson says in his finest manner, The poet of whose work I have undertaken the revision may now begin to assume the dignity of an ancient and claim the privilege of established fame and prescriptive veneration. He has long outlived his century, the term commonly fixed as the test of literary merit. I have often thought that if the period of time fixed by Dr. Johnson as the test of literary merit were applied to certain other directions, it might be productive of good results. For instance, if the lapse of a century were made the condition precedent for the erection of statues and monuments, we should not only be spared some painful works of art, but we should not have so many bronze figures which in much less than a hundred years require an explanation of their existence. Local pride, personal affection, and the first outburst of grief are not always safe guides in determining either literary merit or the permanent position of any man in the history of his time. In the first few months or years after a man's death, it is difficult to get a true historical perspective, and the natural feelings of the moment are apt to distort our vision. These natural feelings, however, are not to be denied, and the temporarily distinguished will continue to receive their share of monuments, which in such cases ought certainly to be formed of material no more enduring than the fame of their subjects. Yet, after all, these lasting memorials of the ephemeral are only a part of those which either decorate or cumber the earth. Many, perhaps most, would be erected even if Dr. Johnson's test of literary merit were strictly enforced. The instinct of humanity for the really great, for the man who has made an ineffaceable mark on the history of his time, who has done some worthy deed or rendered some lasting service, is generally sound and true when death has once set all things even. This is conspicuously the case with the statue of Mr. Reed, which has recently been unveiled in Portland with appropriate ceremonies and with an excellent address by Mr. McCall of Massachusetts. Thomas Brackett Reed was not only a distinguished, but he was also a remarkable man, remarkable and unusual, both in intellect and character. He left a deep mark on the history of his time, and he rendered a very great public service in rescuing the House of Representatives from the condition of helpless insanity into which it had fallen, and by which the right of the majority to rule and the responsibility without which representative government must fail had both been well-nigh destroyed. Rules devised originally to facilitate business and to give reasonable protection to the rights of the minority which under the old and less crowded conditions were both suitable and unabused, had gradually been perverted until public business was at a standstill, and the power to arrest all action had passed to an irresponsible minority, a contradiction of the first principles of free government. Neither the evil nor the cure was peculiar to the United States. The House of Commons passed through the same ordeal and was rescued in the same way, with one important difference— in England, the quorum of the commons consists of 40 members so small a number that it was useless as a weapon for obstruction. With us, a majority quorum is required by the Constitution, and refusing a quorum was the chief means of thwarting action. Mr. Reed met the difficulty by boldly counting those present to make a quorum whether they voted or not. 
It required nerve and courage to do it, and his action unchained a storm. He did not falter for a moment and carried his point, destroying the chief stronghold of obstruction at a blow. He was right in common sense as well as legally and constitutionally. The Supreme Court sustained him, and he had the satisfaction of seeing his political opponents adopt his rules. The fact was that the old parliamentary systems in both England and the United States, which were adapted to simpler conditions of business, society, and politics, were not only outworn, but had become a menace to free government. Mr. Reed destroyed the evil and established a new system. He had the loyal support of all his party associates, but it was he who did it, he alone, and I know of no other man then in public life who could have done it. His great ability was well known, but the patience, the calm, unflinching courage, the force of character which he displayed through all those trying weeks and months, and which were less generally understood, compelled the admiration even of his opponents. I followed and watched him through all that session of bitter conflict and stormy attack. Not only did he exhibit throughout the qualities I have mentioned, but, although he was capable of wrath and strongly combative, I never saw his good nature fail or his ready wit turn, as it might well have done, to anger and fierce denunciation. I remember that one evening, when obstruction had been employed for hours to prevent a vote, and everybody was tired and in a bad temper, I went up to the speaker's desk and asked how long this business was to last. Mr. Reed, perfectly unruffled, turned around with a pleasant smile and said, We shall get a vote in about an hour. Springer has only two more pieces in his repertoire. My friend and colleague, the late Governor Greenhouse, in one of the many heated debates of that winter, quoted Tennyson's famous lines, and never were they more aptly applied than when he referred to Mr. Reed as, One still strong man in a blatant land, whatever they call him, what care I, aristocrat, democrat, autocrat, one who can rule and dare not lie. One still strong man in a blatant land, whatever they call him, what care I, aristocrat, democrat, autocrat, one who can rule and dare not lie. Not only was he at that moment the still strong man, but he was then and always a man who dared not and could not lie either to himself or to others. No leader was ever more loyally followed by his party or more deeply respected by the house at large than was Mr. Reed. Yet he never stopped to curry favor with the house, nor did he hesitate to rebuke it. I remember well on one occasion when he thought that the house was acting, or was about to act, in a cowardly manner, how he told them in the phrase of the Weather Bureau that he had never regarded the house as a courage center, but that this special weakness went beyond all limits. The reform of the rules was a great achievement, preeminently the achievement of a statesman of high order who looked before and after. The word statesman, however, especially in connection with Mr. Reed himself, cannot be used without at once recalling his famous definition. I happened to sit next to him in the house, and he showed me the letter asking him to define a statesman, and his reply, a statesman is a successful politician who is dead. The epigram was published, flew over the country, and has become a familiar quotation. But the sequel is less well known. The correspondent who asked the question telegraphed as soon as he received the answer. Why don't you die and become a statesman? Mr. Reed handed me the telegram and said, Here is my answer. No. Fame is the last infirmity of noble mind. It was extremely unsafe to enter with Mr. Reed upon the exchange of sallies and retorts so beloved of Mrs. Wolfer's copper plate engravers. The first time I met him was in 1881 at Worcester. He had come to address our state convention, but the news of Garfield's death had just arrived, 
and it was felt that nothing should be done except the absolutely necessary business, and that, after adopting appropriate resolutions, the convention should at once adjourn. To Mr. Reed, who had come from Maine on our invitation to make a speech, the situation was a difficult one, but of course he assented to the wishes of the committee. I can see him now as he sat in the little anteroom, looking like a giant, and seeming to fill the room with his presence. His personality, both physical and mental, was so large and so powerful that when, in any connection or for any reason, I recall him or anything he said, I not only see him with the utmost vividness, but the whole scene rises in memory. Whether it was in the Capitol or in a house, on the street or in the country, in a crowd or in solitude, that the incident occurred. Memory is dominated by that commanding figure and by the sense of power and force which went with it. After that first meeting, I met Mr. Reed from time to time, and in 1884 I recall coming across him one day in State Street, just after the nomination of Mr. Blaine. The break in the Republican Party had begun, and I asked Mr. Reed what he thought of the outlook. Well, he said, it is a great comfort to think that the wicked politicians were not allowed to pick the candidate, and that the nomination was made by the people. The politicians would have been guided only by a base desire to win. After this chance meeting, I saw Mr. Reed more and more frequently, until I went to Congress in 1887, and then I was in his company every day, and became not only intimate with him, but very fond of him, for he was capable of inspiring the warmest affection in the friends to whom he was attached. The general public, which fully recognized Mr. Reed's great intellectual force, which delighted to repeat his witticisms, and which rejoiced in his powers in debate and in seeing him overwhelm his antagonists, did not realize, I think, and perhaps it was impossible that they should realize, the warmth of his affection, and the loyalty of his nature, and the tenderness and sympathy shown, not only to those for whom he cared, but for all who sorrowed or were heavy laden. I have no doubt that these qualities, which were so apparent to me, were hidden to the world by the reserve characteristic of the race from which Mr. Reed sprang, a race which shrinks from any easy or noisy display of emotion, but whose feelings are perhaps deeper and stronger because habitually repressed. For Mr. Reed was a typical New Englander in the fullest sense of the word. He was typical in every way, in his intellect, in his character, in his reserve, in the depth of his feelings, and in his independence of thought and action. He came rightly by it, for he was of pure New England stock. He was a lineal descendant of George Cleve or Cleves, the first settler in the Portland region, and took a keen delight in that old Puritan's troubles with the constituted authorities. He was born, brought up, and educated in Maine, and was as representative of his state as he was of his race. I believe the house in which he was born still stands. At all events, it was in existence not long ago, and while he was speaker, someone sent him a photograph of it. His secretary and successor in Congress, Mr. Allen, brought it to him and said, That's a pretty good house to have been born in. Mr. Reed looked at it and said, Yes, Amos, but you see, I was not born in all that house, pointing to an addition made since his time. Even then, said Mr. Allen, it is a pretty good house to have been born in. Yes, said Mr. Reed, but still I was not born in more than two or three rooms of it. There, in the city of his birth, he went to school, and thence to Bowdoin College, and then, after a year or two of teaching, he entered the Navy for service in the Civil War. When the war ended, he betook himself to California with a vague plan of settling in that new country. He used to tell with intense delight of his examination for admission to the bar of California. A young Southerner came before the judge for examination at the same time. 
The judge asked the Southerner if the legal tender acts were constitutional, and the young man answered without a moment's hesitation, no. Then the judge turned to Mr. Reed and asked him the same question. Mr. Reed, with equal promptness, answered, yes. Very well, said the judge, you are both admitted. Two men who can answer that question without hesitation ought to be admitted to any bar. Mr. Reed did not remain long in California. He returned to Maine, began the practice of law in Portland, rose rapidly to the front rank of his profession, became attorney general, and in 1876 was elected to Congress from the Portland District. He had been 10 years in Congress when I became a member and was the recognized leader of the Republican minority. On the first day after we had been sworn in, the usual drawing for seats took place. I was standing beside Mr. Reed behind the rail, and we waited patiently while all the names seemed to be called out except ours. It was painfully evident that we should be among the last and should draw very poor seats. I said to Mr. Reed that our luck seemed pretty bad. Yes, he said, the great trouble with this system is that it is so diabolically fair. Not long after, in the allotment of committee places, I found myself a member of the Committee on Elections. We began at once to report our findings, and one day when we had called up a case, Mr. Reed came into the house and happened to ask me what was going on. I said, an election case, and started to explain it. No explanation is necessary, said Mr. Reed. The House never divides on strictly partisan lines, except when it is acting judicially. For six years I served with Mr. Reed in the House, and during that time he was for four years the leader of the minority and for two years speaker. He was easily the greatest parliamentary leader I ever saw. I fully appreciate the truth of Emerson's doctrine of the force of understatement, but I cannot express my own belief in regard to Mr. Reed without also saying that in my opinion there never has been a greater or more perfectly equipped leader in any parliamentary body at any period. This conviction has only deepened with time, and it seems to me now, when the contests in which he engaged have long since passed into history, that Mr. Reed possessed, in the highest degree, all the qualities necessary for leadership in a great representative body controlled by the party system, which is common to this country and to Great Britain. In the first place, he was a master of parliamentary practice. He not only knew thoroughly the complicated rules of the House, but, what is even rarer, he was equally master of general parliamentary law and understood, as very few men do, the theory and philosophy of the system. His mind was at once acute and broad. Acuteness will make a man very effective on the countless points which arise from a complicated system of procedure, but mere acuteness is not enough to constitute a great parliamentarian. There must be, in addition, a knowledge of general parliamentary law and a full understanding of the fact that the system is not a haphazard collection of precedents, but that it rests upon broad principles and aims at well-defined objects. These conditions Mr. Reed fulfilled in the largest measure, and it was his complete mastery of the whole science, as well as his intimate knowledge of the rules, which enabled him to carry through his great reform. It was essential to his success that the House should have no doubt of the fact that no one on the floor was the equal of the chair in dealing with a question of parliamentary law. It was in the chair, therefore, that his powerful grasp of the subject and his immense knowledge came fully into play. For as leader of the minority, he had no taste for obstruction or for making petty points, which are such irresistible temptations to the sharp but small practitioner. Yet although he did not indulge in little points himself, he fought in the minority as he did in power against any abuse of the rules, and he resented strongly any effort to achieve a partisan advantage by an improper ruling. 
Such efforts roused his indignation not merely from party interest, but because he could not endure violations of the general principles upon which all parliamentary law rests. One day, in a parliamentary discussion, someone cited a ruling and attributed it to Mr. Carlyle, for whose eminent abilities both as a lawyer and as a parliamentarian, Mr. Reed, like all the rest of us, had the highest respect. Mr. Reed at once rose. That ruling, he said, was not made by the Speaker. When the Speaker permits such a ruling as that to be made, he yields the chair to the gentleman from Illinois. He has too much respect for the rules of this House and for parliamentary law to make such a ruling himself. But it was as a leader in debate that Mr. Reed was at his best. He was the finest, the most effective debater I have ever seen or heard. His readiness was very remarkable. I never saw him at a loss. He had a greater power of stating a case unanswerably in a few words than any man I have ever known. His presence of mind never failed, and I do not recall an occasion when he was obliged to explain or retreat from a position suddenly taken, a mishap which may happen to the best and most competent of leaders. With his exceptional capacity for terse, forcible, and lucid statement, was joined the unrivaled power of retort for which he was famous. His mind worked with astonishing rapidity, and his natural originality of thought enabled him always to take the unexpected in an unexpected way. When he stood up, waiting for an opponent to conclude, filling the narrow aisle with his hands resting upon a desk on each side, with every trace of expression banished from his face, and looking as if he had not an idea and hardly heard what was being said, then was he most dangerous. Then I knew that like Lord Thurlow, who was said when he rose from the woolsack to have looked like Jove when he grasped the thunder, Mr. Reed was ready to launch a bolt which would make its victim remember that day's battle with lasting regret. The House of Representatives, like the House of Commons, loves and follows the man who shows its sport, and that Mr. Reed never failed to do. Whether it was the condensed lucid statement to which it was an intellectual pleasure to listen, or fun in which he abounded, or ridicule of which he was past master, or wit and sarcasm which cut and scarred when it fell like the lash of a whip, the house was never disappointed and was well aware of the fact. One of his retorts, so well known that it is a household word, illustrates his quickness as well as any other. Mr. Springer of Illinois was declaring with large and loud solemnity that in the words of Henry Clay, he had rather be right than be president. The gentleman need not be disturbed, interjected Mr. Reed. He never will be either. Hardly a day passed that a repartee of this kind did not fall from his lips and they belong to that small class of witty retorts which cannot in the nature of things have been prepared, and which fly out on the spur of the moment like the sparks from an anvil. He was particularly strong in debate under the five-minute rule, which puts a debater's powers to the severest test. To make a point and an effective statement in five minutes demands much skill. Mr. Reed had himself a perfect conception both of the difficulties and opportunities of the five-minute debate. I remember his saying to my friend John Russell of my own state, a very clever and most delightful man, Russell, you do not understand the theory of five-minute debate. The object is to convey to the House in the space of five minutes either information or misinformation. You have consumed several periods of five minutes this afternoon without doing either. Mr. Reed, like most men of vigorous nature, was a strong partisan, and in the conflicts of party he was very formidable, for his attacks upon his political opponents were severe and always pushed home. But what stirred his wrath was anything which seemed to him mean or underhand. He was a good hater, and he detested shams, humbug, and pretense above everything else. 
If he saw these qualities in a man, he was unforgiving. There was a Democratic member conspicuous in my time who, in Mr. Reed's opinion, came within this class. He was a large, fine-looking, and distinctly able man. It was said that he was unscrupulous politically, and he was certainly a dangerous antagonist. He spoke with an affectation of great frankness and honesty, and he was very fond of the words candor and candid, which gave a special offense to Mr. Reed. They had many encounters, and able as our candid friend was, he was always worsted. I was standing by one day when he came over and expostulated with Mr. Reed on his severity, which led only to a frank expression of Mr. Reed's opinion of him and his methods. At last this member died, and in due time was eulogized in both houses. Just after the eulogies, some friends of mine came to Washington from Boston, and I invited Reed and McKinley and some others to meet them at dinner. The conversation turned on the subject of the recent eulogies. Mr. Reed gave his opinion and account of the deceased member in his usual incisive way, and then said, There are those who believe that the spirits of the departed are all about us. I trust the spirit of is here tonight, for I should like him to hear once more the opinion of him and his performances, which I have so often expounded to him in public and private during his life. The wit and humor were not carefully kept for public display or for the exigencies of debate. Mr. Reed did not lay his good things aside for use only in public. They came as readily and generously in private and in talk with a single friend. I remember one which illustrates the readiness that never failed, and which I will venture to repeat. It was after a dinner party. The conversation had turned on gambling and betting. Mr. X said, It is a curious thing, perhaps, but I never made a bet on a horse, a card, or anything else in my life. To this, a senator replied with great earnestness, I wish I could say that. Why can't you, asked Mr. Reed. X did. There was no one Mr. Reed respected more than Mr. X, but that could not stay the jest. Yet it would be a great misconception of Mr. Reed to suppose that the deep humor and the quick wit for which he was famous were his chief attributes, or that they were used merely to bring laughter or to furnish a telling retort in debate or conversation. They were only two of the weapons in his large intellectual armory and if the most frequently used, were by no means the most important. He could truly have said with Dr. Holmes, While my gay stanza pleased the banquet's lords, my soul within was tuned to deeper chords. In addition to the power of orderly, effective, unanswerable statement of a proposition, he could make a great argument on a great subject. He rose to the heights in the denunciation of wrong or wrongdoing, and in the advocacy of what he believed to be right. In his long speeches, of which he was very sparing, the humor, the sarcasm, and the wit were all present, flashing out and illuminating his subject, but they went deeper than laughter and carried profound reflection with them. In the course of his speech closing the debate on the Mills Bill, May 19, 1888, for the Republican side, he said, After all, this exaggerated idea of the profits of manufacturers is at the bottom of the chairman's feelings. Whenever I walk through the streets of that democratic importing city of New York and look at the brownstone fronts, my gorge always rises. I can never understand why the virtue which I know is on the sidewalk is not thus rewarded. I do not feel kindly to the people inside. But when I feel that way, I know what the feeling is. It is good, honest, high-minded envy. When some other gentlemen have the same feeling, they think it's political economy. Here is an apt illustration not only of his wit, but the more penetrating touch which in a sentence uncovers a common foible of human nature. 
A little later in the same speech occurs another passage, which I will give in full, because it is such an excellent illustration of Mr. Reed's power of ridiculing with all the resources of rhetoric, a sham which he hated and which his illustrations and similes exposed by the law of contrasts. Monopoly, said Horace Greeley, a doctor of laws and once a candidate of the Democratic Party for the presidency. Monopoly is perhaps the most perverted and misapplied word in our much abused mother tongue. How very tame this language is. I suppose that during the 10 years last past, I have listened in this hall to more idiotic raving, more pestiferous rant on that subject than on all the others put together. And yet I do not regret it. What a beautiful sight it is to see the revenue reform orator go into action against monopoly. Nelson, as he stood blazing with decorations on the decks of the victory on the fatal day of Trafalgar, Napoleon at Friedland, as the guard went cheering and charging by, Thomas Sayers, as he stripped for the championship of England when Heenan had crossed the lifting waters, the eagle soaring to his eyrie, the royal man-eating Bengal tiger in his native jungle, nay, the very bull himself, the strong bull of Bashan, as he uplifts his bellow over the rocky deserts of Palestine, are all but pale reminders of one of these majestic creatures. And yet, outside the patent office, there are no monopolies in this country, and there never can be. Ah, but what is that I see on the far horizon's edge, with tongue of lambent flame and eye of forked fire, serpent-headed and griffin-clawed? Surely it must be a great new chimera. Trust. Quick, cries every masked member of the Ways and Means. Quick, let us lower the tariff. Let us call in the British. Let them save our devastated homes. Courage, dear brethren, be not too much disturbed. The Lord will reign even if the board of mayor and aldermen should adjourn. One other instance of the deeper note which his wit and humor so often struck will suffice. In an article about the tariff, he spoke of the attraction which free trade offers because it presents a number of convenient aphorisms, and people like to feel that they have truth in a nutshell and can take it out and look at it and think that truth is simple. The fact is, he continued, that half-truths are simple, but the whole truth is the most complicated thing on earth. There the epigram strikes at the root of things and conveys a real philosophy. One other instance occurs to me which shows his power of illustration as well as the capacity for epigram. He had been hearing a great deal from the free trade side of the survival of the fittest and the folly of attempting to set aside the great natural law by statute. Mr. Reed referred to this in his reply and said, I quote from memory, Gentlemen are fond of talking about the survival of the fittest, but they never complete the sentence. It is not the abstractly fittest who survive. The sentence really is the survival of the fittest to survive. That is, the fittest for a given environment. If you cast a minnow and the magnificent bowl of Bashan into the Atlantic Ocean, there is no question which is the nobler organism, the abstractly fittest. But the great bowl of Bashan will perish and the minnow will survive in that environment. The fact was that Mr. Reed had a mind of remarkable originality. He not only was an eminently independent thinker and a very strong and sound one, but he thought in his own way and framed his conclusions in a manner peculiar to himself. Every fact, every occurrence, important or unimportant, common or uncommon, was returned or reflected from his mind at an angle quite different from that of other people. A very trifling incident will illustrate my meaning. He came one day to lunch with me in the Senate restaurant. We sat down in a cramped space at a very small table. In compressing himself into the corner, he overturned a glass, and the ice which it contained fell out on the floor. He picked up the glass, and looking at me with his quizzical expression, said, I don't care. It isn't my ice. 
There was nothing of consequence in either incident or remark, but the mental process and the angle of reflection were entirely different from those of other people. Another little story that comes to my mind illustrates these same qualities. A member of the house, who was also a warm friend of Mr. Reed, was sitting one day at his desk with his legs and feet extended into the aisle. The speaker came up the narrow path, and my friend said, moving as he spoke, "'Let me get down out of your way, Mr. Speaker.' Reed looked down and said, one will do, and passed on. I should like to say much of Mr. Reed as a great political leader and a constructive statesman outside of Congress, as well as in the House. I should like especially to say something of him when he was a candidate for the presidency. I supported him as strongly as I could and had the honor of presenting his name to the convention at St. Louis. I was familiar with all the incidents of his candidacy and I know how he declined to promise offices from the cabinet down or to spend money to secure Southern delegates. He lost the nomination, but he kept his honor pure and his high conception of public duty unstained and unimpaired. Unfortunately, the limits of space compel me to confine myself to this inadequate attempt to give an impression of him simply as the parliamentary chief, the leader and speaker of the house where his greatest fame was won. Yet I cannot close without a word about him as a man. He was many-sided, a great reader, deeply versed in English literature, and also in the literature of France, especially old France, upon which he used to work at night with a teacher in the busiest times of an exciting session. He was a lover of art and natural scenery and knew much of both. He liked to travel both at home and abroad, wandering about in cities and watching the people, for he was a close observer and always learning. No more agreeable companion ever lived. Like Dr. Johnson, he loved to sit and have his talk out, and no one was ever better to listen to or a better listener, for his sympathies were wide, his interests unlimited, and nothing human was alien to him. With the friends he cared for, and he was himself the most loyal of friends, he would sit or walk by the hour, talking of everything, and the talk was always fresh, keen, and suggestive, and the great, hearty, contagious laugh would come at intervals and carry everyone with it. To those who knew him best and loved him most, it is sad to speak of him as a figure in history, sadder still to think that the great nature, the wit, the humor, the sympathy, the deep laughter, the honest indignation are now only memories. End of section 12, Thomas Brackett Reed.